Do me a favor and turn to the sixth chapter of Acts. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, somebody back there will get you a Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get it to you. And we're going to do Acts 6, part 2. And uh, I never name our sermon. I'm so unorganized, there's no way I could name a sermon, but it came to me this week. And uh, for the next two weeks, uh, I think what we could name our sermon's uh, topic or, or, or what we're going to speak on for the next two weeks, words of a waiter, the words of a waiter, W-A-I-T-E-R. Now, listen, with that, do we have a video and it's ready to go? Okay, so who, I don't see them back there. Okay, they're behind the computers. So we're going to turn down the lights before we start anything and before we pray, and we're going to show you a little video, okay? Are we good to go? Okay. Hey, uh, Jesse, can you... T- oh, no, the lights aren't there anymore. Uh, can you watch this video with me? This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it, though he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of... Kim. Yet, oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate, who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13, and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family, and he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life, ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James, who was influenced by Thomas. Thomas, on Uncommon Joy and Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. Well, praise God for Kim, huh? And all of us are called to be Kims, and that's the point of Acts. And uh, uh, so what I want to do is uh, pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll get into it. And uh, thanks for, to Autumn for bringing that to our attention. Uh, that's a powerful video. So let's bow our heads. Well, Lord, we come here this morning, and uh, thank you so much uh, 
for your word. It's powerful. Uh, it impacts us in a real way, a living way, um, able to cut in the right way, divide soul from spirit. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would do your mighty work here today in us as we study your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have. We've been looking through the book of Acts, and uh, we're moving forward. And uh, Acts is Luke 2, because Dr. Luke wrote this book. And he, uh, as we talked on the first day that we met, he wrote this, and this is a touching thing, to one person, Theophilus, probably a royal, or excuse me, a Roman you know, a person, uh, anyway, he, he wrote to one person, and that's touching. Uh, he was out for the one. The Lord had done something in Luke's heart that was very much like Jesus. When one would, would go away, Jesus would find them. Uh, not that Theophilus went away, but, uh, you know, here you have this man, Luke, writing this, and we've been traveling, seeing what the early church did and was like, and they were empowered by the Spirit, first of all. And we saw that in the day of Pentecost and the coming on of the Holy Spirit and the crowd's response. And then this guy named Peter, who was part of the early church, who had failed the Lord. You ever felt like you failed the Lord and had a pit in your stomach like, oh, how could I ever return? And Peter here, uh, Jesus promised and restored him in the Gospels. And after Jesus died and rose again and sent his Holy Spirit, Jesus was true to his word as Peter fed the sheep and started proclaiming the good news. And they were hearing these things, and uh, uh, people were in and around Jerusalem, and the church was growing. And we find our first pause, summary, snapshot. Luke does it several times as we're going through the book. It's like he calls a time out every so often and says, I want you to look what the early church was like and see, and boom, there it is. And we saw it at the beginning in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to the end of the chapter. And they did many things, but they concentrated on these things. Steadfastly continuing in the doctrine, the apostles' doctrine. You're doing that today. That's what we do, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's what we want to do when we get together. And they were doing it. And uh, they were uh, continuing in the Word. They were fellowshipping in the breaking of bread, and they were praying together. They were a fellowshipping group, and they were a people who came around the table and shared and loved and, of course, uh, took the Lord's Prayer when, when, when they did and had their feasts and they remained in prayers. And what a great snapshot for us. And then we see Peter and John healing a lame man as they go off to church. I mean, for them, they just stayed in the, uh, the temple going up to the prayer times, just living their Christian life. And they see a famous lame man and they bring him up and a, a, a miracle happens. And they go into the uh, temple areas and people see this famous lame man. I mean, here you are just living your Christian life, going to prayer time. And before you know it, a miracle's happen. And then the next thing you know, they become arrested and they're set before the Sanhedrin. Now I should have checked with our crack staff back there because I sent another picture about the Sanhedrin and where they would meet. And I don't know if we have that available. If we don't, we should have it here in a little bit. But they met and they um, uh, went to this 70 ruling council area that was up on the Temple Mount. So 70 people, 70 men who would judge and rule on civil and political, excuse me, uh, religious matters. And Peter gives this unbelievably amazing, powerful, spirit-filled sermon and many more are added toward the church. But you know, they before they uh, got to that place, you know, the, the, the council sort of, you know, admonishes them and says, quit talking about this stuff. You got to stop. And they actually even imprisoned them for one night. And remember the prayer. I mean, the prayer. It's so different than the American prayers. Oh, Lord, never put me back in the prison cell. Never again. Don't ever. I'm so, I'm a, I'm a Christian. You owe this to me. I want to be comfortable and pleasant and have good times and post all my stuff on Instagram and have wonderful looking cars and children and houses and just, you know, smile. No, that's what not what they prayed for. They said after prison, they prayed for this, Lord, help us to be even more bold 
in sharing our faith. That's what they were about, and they did, and they went out, and you know uh, uh, they had an impact in and around Jerusalem. And we see another time out at the end of chapter 4 as they share in all things. And that was a necessity at the time because you had over 5,000, you know, 3,000 to 5,000 people and they'd come from other countries and they're staying in Jerusalem. This isn't preaching communism. This is preaching the heart of God to share what you have when a need arises. And then in chapter 5, we come across an Ananias and Sapphira and we recognize that God, to God, sin is a serious matter. It's not something that we can um, just blow off because we're in an era of grace. Well, that's never what the Bible teaches. And in Ananias and Sapphira, as God's doing something new, the church is growing. These two want to be seen as more spiritual than they are. They come into the church with ultra amounts of hypocrisy, and the apostles give them opportunities to confess they've been hypocrites, and they don't, and they're struck dead. And after that, you see continuing, it's amazing, power in the church. And the uh, uh, apostles are imprisoned again. And we then come to chapter 6. And last week, we saw that there was a threat, the threat from the enemy. The threat from the enemy was, let's first try to come from without. Send people against the church to criticize them and to put them in prison. But when they saw that didn't work, the enemy shifted his strategy and said, you know what? That's a bad strategy. Let's try to divide the church from within. And what we hear about is in chapter 6, we see that there was a number of disciples, uh, or a number of disciples were multiplying, so the church is growing, and there arose a complaint. And remember, I said that's like playing, you know, the football game when your team runs out and maybe a a defensive back falls down and the quarterback throws the ball. And when the ball's in the air and you know that the guy's going to catch the ball, the crowd starts going, whoa, you know, it gets that thing. And you're just so excited. Hopefully he doesn't drop it, right? And that's the word that they use in the great Greek phrase there, that this murmuring, these complaints started to grow and get louder. And the... Leaders of the church, the apostles, they didn't ignore the complaints. They said, hey, come talk to us about the complaint. Why don't you just come? And the complaint was that there were two groups of Jewish people that were coming into the family of God, the traditional Orthodox Hebrew Jews, and there were the Hellenistic Jews. Now, remember, before Jesus came, there was this guy named Alexander the Great, and he conquered the biblical world, and he was a Greek. And what he did was he put his stamp on civilization with dress, music, literature, and, of course, customs and the way they worshipped were a little different. And the Hebrew Jews, some of them, not all of them, looked down on the Hellenistic Jews because they were advancing and not doing the old ways. And that was the complaint. And the apostles listened and did this amazing thing. Here's what they did. They came up by the wisdom of God because they prayed like James, the brother of Christ, says later in his book, why don't you just ask for wisdom? Not just knowledge, wisdom. Ask for God's wisdom. God gives them wisdom, and they appoint, listen, seven leaders who all appear to be Greek Jews. It's amazing. I mean, of course, what a great solution, because they're going to get the job done because they're ministering to the people. And we said when we left, didn't we, that there is no place in the church or any church for cliques. Zero. None. You're going to come across people that you'd normally just naturally like. If somebody's out there that likes to talk Buckeye football, I'm going to come talk to you. Because I like Buckeye football. But that doesn't mean I'm going to ignore or exclude people who hate football. No, we have the life of Christ, and so there's no clicks. And we get to this place in verse 7 of chapter 6 right after this thing has been solved. What a beautiful thing, how the Lord solved it. Actually, even um, uh, uh, Charles Swindoll, I was going to say another guy's name, he summed it up this way, this portion of Acts. 
Rapid growth doesn't excuse unmet needs. So if you're growing in the church, there's going to be unmet needs, but don't make excuses about it, leaders. Now that's a lesson for the leaders today. These men in leadership listened to a legitimate complaint and then did something about it. They didn't defend themselves against the accusation of favoritism. They didn't ignore the problem beneath their level of concern. They didn't dismiss or minimize the need, and they certainly didn't discredit the people who were complaining. They listened to the criticism and then saw it as an opportunity to address an unmet need. Concerned involvement doesn't require losing priorities. The apostles found a way to meet the needs of the congregation, solve the problem without sacrificing their top priorities. And what was their top priorities, they said, was the apostles' place within the church was to study, pray together, and proclaim the good news. And so they appointed some people to do some of the physical ministry, etc., of the church. Isn't that fascinating that today serve a Sunday? Now, the other fascinating thing about this, as I've told you, I'm not very good planner, just admit it. We've been doing an adult Sunday school for the last several weeks that is really well attended by you folks. Praise the Lord. You wanted to know how to serve in the right way. And we went through a book by Warren Wiersbe called On Being a Servant of God. It's an amazing book if you've never read it. Uh, read it. Yeah, see? Yay. Praise the Lord. We got people that love it, and I agree. And actually, when I was walking out the door today, my wife stopped me and said, this is an amazing book, and she's right. She is right. And so isn't it any coincidence it's not that we finished that course today? We're studying about it here in Acts, and of course, it's service Sunday. And the thing I want you to notice that when we're all doing the thing that God has called us to do, thank goodness for Kim, who just shared the life and light of Christ with some people, with some friends, with some acquaintances. And she was in a coffee house with a person who had come round about under the influence that God used, and she didn't even know it. Wow. That's the book of Acts. And so we get here, and what happened to me this week is I was going to try and take you all the way through chapter 7. Now, that's foolish. Chapter 7 is the longest book or chapter in the book of Acts. And I was praying about it last night, and the Lord keeps bringing chapter 7 to my thoughts and mind and impressing upon me. Because here is one verse where God calls a time out. And he says, look at this. Then the word of God spread. This is right after these seven men of which Stephen and Philip are one, these seven men to serve the tables and the widows who they said, the Hellenists said, were being neglected, to serve them. And he says in chapter 7, then the word of God spread. When? After they solved the problem. Remember, what does murmuring and complaining do? Look back in the book of Joshua to Achan when he hid something in his tent that he wasn't supposed to take from the spoils of war. What does murmuring, complaining do to the church in general? It makes the church detour and take away from the mission of moving forward in discipling. You get it? And yet, there's an appropriate and uh, spiritual way to handle it. God sets it forth. And in Achan's case, remember, they had to parade all the families in front of the leaders in the wilderness there. Before, you know, or after they, you know, or into the promised land there. And so uh, that took a significant amount of time. And this took time, even though it was done in a biblical and godly way. But once they got this thing figured out and the Lord blessed it, watch what happens. The word of God spread. The word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now that's staggering. You and I can't fathom it because we're not Jewish and didn't grow up around a temple or many synagogues. We didn't do that for, for the most part in here. Some people maybe. But this is staggering, and I want you to see something before we move on and finish out the chapter. The word of God spread. So despite the fact that you, you and I and we have been reading that they've been performing miracles, Jesus healed multitudes of sick 
and lame and these amazing miracles. And he said, if you go into Jerusalem and you wait there, I'm going to bring the promise of the Father to you, the power of the Holy Spirit upon your life. And he had said previously that you're going to do greater things than I. Don't you, when you read that he's going to, I'm going to do greater things than Jesus, don't you sort of go, wait a minute. Did you really say that? And here we see that some of the apostles, Peter and John specifically, have done miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here, hold my hand here, lame man, and get up and walk. Boom. And we see in the next verse, Stephen was full of faith and power and did great wonders and signs among the people. I want you to see that. Who here likes miracles? I like miracles. You like miracles? I love miracles. I know that the Lord still does them, but I want you to see something really, really powerful. How did the church grow? Because of the word of God. The miracles would confirm maybe, yes, not maybe, they do. But it isn't the miracles that propel you on, it's the word. And there's no substitute for the word of God. And it says here that the word of God spread, or in the Greek, kept spreading. So what is the word of God? Here in Acts, we see that the word of God is called the word of this salvation. That's one description of the word of God. Here in the book of Acts later, two times, Acts 14, Acts 20, we see that the word of God is called the word of his grace. Now time out here for a second. Little rabbit trail. If you want to do something great in 2023, embark upon a study of the grace of God. Be a person who's nimble in the doctrine of grace, knowing grace, knowing God's grace. Here's what I did. You don't have to do what I do, but I'm just telling you how it blessed me. One time, this man named Bob Hoekstra came to our church, and he gave a seminar about God's grace, and it changed my life. It wrecked me. And that was about 20 years ago. And so we have downstairs Day by Day by Grace and a devotional. You can buy it down there, or you can just for free get Day by Day by Grace on your phone, emailed to you every day, or read it there. And what I love about the devotion is, and I'm not plugging a devotion as much as what, what I love about this is his devotion isn't like random. Boom, boom, boom. A lot of devotions, you do this, you do this, you're not really putting precept upon precept, no offense. This one goes, it adds and builds all the way for 365 days, and at the end you're like, oh, grace. You're in awe again, or, or for the first time, or again. And here it says the word of God spread, and it's called the word of his grace here in Acts later. It's also in Acts 15 called the word of the gospel. So I want you to know what we're working with. What they were doing was teaching the word of God. Of course, they would know the Old Testament, and they would teach from that and show people how Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was predicted in the old scriptures. But now they were actually with Jesus, and they could tell the stories and the word of God around all of that. And so the word became important to the early church. If it's important to the early church, wouldn't it be important to us? Because here's why, listen, the spoken word or the word read is very powerful. Uh, you know, uh, faith comes by and hearing the, yeah, you know, faith comes by hearing. How do you enter into the family of God? Because you read and start as the Holy Spirit, uh, you read the word of God and then the Holy Spirit illuminates brings on the light, so to speak, Let uh, uh, scales fall from your eyes, you're not blind anymore, you read it, and you understand it, and you recognize you're a sinner, and you repent, and you turn towards God, and you ask Him to come into your life and be your Lord and Savior forever. You're following Him. He's the captain of our salvation, and it comes by the Word of God, you understand? So it's powerful. And here, here's how I know it's powerful, because in Romans, that same book, it tells us that it's the power of God unto salvation. The word of God is powerful. And what should I be doing and our leaders be doing? What should we be doing? By the way, I, I know I could put the things up here and you could look at them up here. And I probably should do that. 
Well, first of all, I run out of a lot of time and I am a little unorganized, but I think there's something about turning to the verses. And that's just me. Maybe I'm old fashioned. So I'm going to ask you today to turn to the verses. And even if it's on your phone, turn there and look at them with me. And so what should we be doing as a church and the word of God? Well, we should be doing this. Turn to 2 Timothy 4.2. 2 Timothy 4.2. And when you get there, this is an amazing thing. Paul, talking to his understudy, Timothy, talks about charging him before God and the Lord Jesus, who's going to judge. Here's what he says. Do this. What am I supposed to be doing? What are our leaders supposed to be doing for people who are followers of Christ or for people who come in here who don't know Christ in a real and saving way? We're to preach, watch, the word. We're not to preach necessarily about all the cute stories and all the little fun things that you can laugh about, although we can have fun in here too, but we should be going through the Word because the Word is living and active and powerful, and we should be preaching the Word. We should be ready in season and out of season, Paul was convinced, because we are to convince, rebuke, exhort, how? With the Word all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when people or they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because they have itching ears. In other words, they want to hear what they want to hear, not what the Word says. They come in with a presupposed idea of what that pastor should be saying, and if that pastor says something I don't agree with, bang, out the door. But the problem is, hopefully, the pastor is talking from the Bible, not about the Bible. You get it? There's a difference. And so here we're to preach and because people need to hear because they have itching ears and they'll heap up for themselves teachers and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and they'll be turned aside to fables. And if you're getting fables at the place that you go, run. Wherever it is, get the word. Because all scripture, prior chapter, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete. Not complete like perfect, but mature. Who here wants to be a baby all their life? No, you don't want to be a baby, you want to grow. So that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now here again, time out, we're doing service Sunday. I think personally, this verse teaches that if you're doing the bulletin ministry, you should be equipped by the word to do your service. If you're doing the toilet cleaning ministry, you should be equipped by the word for your service. If you're setting up the chair, service. If you're the pastor, service. If you're, or excuse me, word. <laughs> if you're back in the AV audio stuff and do all that, word, being equipped. We want to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of the Christ. And our concentration is and always will be giving you the word. Now go back to another guy who was in the early church and listen to what he has to say about it. Go to 1 Peter. Go to 1 Peter. Chapter 1. Oh, chapter 2, I think. First Peter, uh, chapter 2. Let's go in verse 1. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. Isn't this funny? This goes right with Acts 6. What was happening? They were murmuring. They were complaining. They were... Uh, having complaints. And instead of hiding it, which was a wrong thing to do, they brought it to the elders, good thing to do. But remember, Peter was around at this time. He was giving some of the sermons. He, he knew of this problem, although he isn't mentioned directly with it necessarily in chapter 6. But listen to what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, laying aside all malice, 
All deceit, all hypocrisy. Isn't that interesting? Ananias and Sapphira. He was impacted by this stuff. Envy and all evil speaking as newborn babes. What should I do to mature? He doesn't say that, but that's what he's writing about. As a newborn babe, these are the things I do. As I mature, these are the things I do. Watch, how do I mature? As, wait a minute, got to get back there. Newborn babe, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word. The pure milk of the word. Get fed. When you have a new baby come out, and we've had new babies this week, praise the Lord. When you have new babies come out, you don't fire up the grill and make a steak. That would be torture. That would be mean. What you do is you get a little milk. You know. You might even need to use a little syringe, and they drink that way. Well, that's the image here. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the world. You're, you're going to start with milk, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have, in taste, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, and you've come into the family of God because you've trusted in Christ for all, for all things, one of the things that's a directive for you is to grow in the Word. There's no substitute, folks. There's none. Our responsibility is to help you in that, but your responsibility is to receive an outside of church just precept by precept, day by day, learning of God through His Word. And when you do, here, it says it here, that you'll mature. And when you mature, one of the things that you're going to do, healthy, mature sheep and that's what we are as followers of Christ. I mean, sometimes I wish he'd say, like, ah, you're a jaguar. <laughs> or, I don't know, what's a great, awesome animal? A lion, you're a lion. No, he calls us sheep, stinky, smelly sheep who sometimes wander. And wouldn't that certainly describe my life sometimes? And he says, what are, what's good for the sheep is to be fed and to grow and to mature. And after you do, you're going to get more solid food, more things, more things, more things, but learn the basics to grow and to mature. And when that happens, when we start to become mature, guess what happens? Just naturally supernatural. The sheep start reproducing sheep. Yeah. Now there's this man, I tell you about this all the time. There was this man, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but I just find it interesting. His name was Ray Stedman. And he ministered across the street from Stanford in Palo Alto. You ever been to Stanford in Palo Alto? It isn't the most receptive place to share the gospel. But Ray Stedman was dedicated to the Word of God. And he came out there after Dallas Theological Seminary with eight families. And within years, not very many years, there were 15,000 people in the church. And one of the, way, one of the things that Ray Stedman was convicted about was, I'm not saying I agree with it, I'm just, it's an example. I don't know if I agree with it, it's an example, is that he gave this many altar calls in the church, that many. And you know what he did? You know what his theory was? Is that I'm going to train the sheep in the highways and byways of life to share the gospel and bring them in to be discipled. And it worked. The Lord blessed it. Now, again, is there a way that we could do that sometimes? Sure. But what we're saying here is healthy sheep produce healthy sheep. You want to be a great evangelist? Do you want to share the gospel? Do this. We learned it today. But I think I would have said it before. You want to be a great evangelist? Have a devotion with the Lord every single day. Because why? Because you need to be filled up like I need to be filled up daily. It's so fascinating. In one of the Gospels, when Jesus is feeding the thousands, he tells them something that if you don't pay attention, you might miss. He tells them to sit down in groups of 50 and 100. I think it's 50 and 100, which naturally produces what? Aisles. Why does he do that? Because he's saying, I want you to go out, deliver the nutrition, the bread, which is a picture of Jesus himself, and then every time you do it, I want you to come back and get more. And then the next day, I want you to go out and deliver it, or the next hour, or whatever. You and I and we, in order to be multiplying people, 
in the church. Obviously, the Lord does the work, but he calls us to do it. In order to be multiplying, we need to be filled up. In fact, I want you to see something about Stephen. Look over here as we move back to Acts chapter 6. Look over in Acts chapter 6, and I want you to notice something about Stephen, because I think many of you know how incredible the story of Stephen is. And one of the keys, I think, is this. Look here in verse 8, and Stephen was what? What's the word? Full. Yes. Full of grace, or some Bible translations say faith. Full of grace or faith. Okay. I want you to look back, verse 3. Therefore, brethren, they're being told who to seek out the apostles. In other words, Stephen becomes a deacon-like, a server in the church. And they were told to seek out seven men of good reputation. What's the word? Full of the Holy Spirit. Oh, look over in verse 5. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man, say it, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. There was one thing for certain about Stephen, as he was called to be a waiter, a person who waited on the tables for the widows. There was one thing clear about Stephen. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was full. He would go out into the aisles and distribute God's provision, and he would go back and get more. And he would go back and do it again. And he was full, and he was full, and he was full. And I think we need to see that that we can be full of the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that a lot. Well, the number of disciples, it says in verse 7, multiplied greatly. Fascinating because in Acts chapter 2, it says that uh, disciples were added. <laughs> then in Acts chapter 5, we see subtraction. Then in Acts chapter 6, we start to see multiplication. The Lord sometimes multiplies when he purifies the church. Not sometimes, I think he does. And so the number of the disciples multiplied. They multiplied. And uh, greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the, pre, or the priests were obedient to the faith. Now I want to just make two points. I sort of made it earlier. In order to multiply, we first must be teaching the word and in taking in the word, and then the sheep will grow. We talked about that. But the other thing I want to talk about here is these, this thing about the priests. Why in the world would Luke put this in here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because as I read it the first time, it's like a gripping moment for not only the priests themselves, but also the community of believers and non-believers in Jerusalem, that they would have priests who would come and surrender their life to Jesus. Now, who were the priests? They were the men who ministered in and around the temple areas. And not everybody had real highfalutin, high-paying jobs in there. Some people estimate that at this time, some people go as high as that there were 18,000 priests. Now, they all didn't serve at the same time. They had different, uh, they had, they, they scheduled them. They scheduled them in there. Remember, uh, 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 when John the Baptist was born, his dad had, it was his week or his month or whatever. So they would schedule them in there. They didn't all do it at the same time. And most of them, you know, uh, we're not making a lot of money and they did it out of love and they administered in the temple and they were around and heard and uh, adhered to the law of God that was given on Mount Sinai. Everybody with me? They're the priests. They come uh, from the tribe of Levi, from the order of Aaron. That's in the Old Testament. But these people who are here and find themselves here during the time of Jesus and remember, Rome occupies the ancient world, but they let Israel do their religious stuff. As long as they do their religious stuff, keep the peace, pay the taxes, they'll just let them go on. So this is going on, and the priests are doing this. But we see that there was something about the message that was spoken 
that they heard. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. They didn't talk pithy statements, Facebook uh, sayings. They gave the word of God to people in and around Jerusalem. Now, I've been reading about early evangelism. And if you read extra biblical accounts of what the church did, it's fascinating. They went everywhere. Like, they didn't go, okay, you know what we'll do? We'll get an evangelistic committee up. Nothing against evangelistic committees. And we'll schedule. You know what we'll do? I think on the 28th, from 2 to 4, we'll go out and evangelize. That wasn't the early church. In fact, if you read about the early church, they went everywhere, all day, every day. Including, like, they would go all up and down the shopping areas of if they had such things, in and around Jerusalem. They would go over to the coastline and go through what were then the shipyards and share with the shipping people. I mean, you know what shipping people can be like. Is there any shipping people in here? You're, you're running a mega business on the Monongahela River. No, but they would do this. They would, they would go uh, into the synagogues. They would go everywhere. And when they went, they would bring the message of the gospel, folks. And they were sharing because they were healthy. And these people, the priests, apparently some of them got saved. Now, who are you thinking about in your life? I want you to think right now. And you say, yeah, I know you're the pastor and you got to say this stuff, but this person, no way. No way. If I shared with them, nothing. They wouldn't respond, nothing. That's what some of us think sometimes. See, that's what saying the priest got saved is like. No way. Their adherence to the law. In fact, some major commentators believe that the priests that they're talking about in this verse were Sadducees, a sect of religious Jews who didn't believe in the supernatural. Oh my. You talk about the hardest of hard to share with. But they did. It says they did. And I want you to think about some things. If they got saved, when did they get saved? And think about what was happening. Remember, Jesus healed a leper. or some, Remember when he healed a leper and he said, I want you to go down to the priests and have them check you over and make sure it's a good healing, right? According to the law of Moses. Remember that? Well, I wonder if any of these right here were around or heard that story. Or maybe they had gotten saved. Think about this. And here come Peter and uh, uh, John, and they're doing this. And Stephen comes along, and he's doing some of these miracles. I, it doesn't say that Stephen he healed a leper. But, you know, healing the leper was the sign of Messiah. Can you imagine being in your duty station at the temple, and you're saved, and, you, you know, you're still in the world of uh, uh, Judaism, and all of a sudden, a guy knocks on the door and says, Hey, Mr. Priest, I just got cleansed from leprosy, and I was told by Stephen and the apostles to come down and get checked over according to the law of Moses. What would you have been thinking? It would have been like the assembly line of the gospel coming right into your business. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Think about some other things that would have happened during this time to the Orthodox Jewish priests. You know, they performed sacrifices, and we know that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, Hebrews 10, 12, John 19, 30. And what I'm saying there is, they must have been blown away that this finally dawned on them that all those sacrifices for all those hundreds of years and the light, or, you know, the Holy Spirit does his work and the blinders come off and they're like, wow, I've been serving in this temple. And it was all pointing to Jesus whom was killed right over there, you know, or condemned to die right over there. Who? And then maybe, can you imagine after Jesus was on the cross and you'd been hearing about these things and you'd hearing about this, you know, the, the way, the sect, the way, and you, you go into work and you come into work and you're like, people are whispering and they're like, what, what's wrong? And they're, they're, they're going, did you know the veil's been torn in two and it's laying down there? And you'd have been saying, what? 
We can't get to the, the Lord. We can't get to the Father. We can't get to the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory's back there. Only one priest can go back there. And you're telling me the temple's lay, or the temple veil is laying on the floor? Yeah, the temple veil is laying on the floor. Wow. Can you imagine? And so something radical happened, and that's the gospel. And I want to reintroduce to you and say to you that the gospel is powerful and that you can have gentle, loving boldness to share with the one that you thought, oh, there's no way, there's no way, that person. You might be thinking that humanly. Remember the priests and that you have the same person, the Holy Spirit, in you that these apostles did. So go and share. And so here's what made them amazing, that they would spread the gospel and they would share it and talk about it anywhere they went, everywhere they went. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I don't ever want to forget that scripture, man. So Stephen then, look in verse 8, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Did great wonders among the people. And then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Cyrenians, Alexandrians, I can't say it very well, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now let's talk about that. Remember, during the Babylonian exile, that's all the way back in the Old Testament, during the Babylonian exile, what happened? Synagogues started to spring up anywhere Jewish people were. And apparently they sprung up in Jerusalem. And there was this one synagogue that had this different mix of ethnic groups. Cyrenians who are from North Africa, Alexandrians who are from Egypt. And this is the most fascinating one. Don't tune out here. There's this one in, you know, the Mediterranean area called Cilicia. And the capital of Cilicia is Tarsus. And guess who was from Tarsus? Saul or Paul. So could it be, may it have been, that Paul when he was not a follower of Christ, was in this synagogue at some of the times in which Stephen preached. Maybe. I don't know. It was a Hellenistic synagogue, and Paul wasn't that, but he certainly would have been invited there because of his brothers and sisters, uh, anyway, who were from Cilicia, Tarsus. Amazing thought, right? Amazing thought. So here you come, and uh, how did this one come to be called, this synagogue that popped up in Jerusalem, freedmen? In 63 BC, there was a guy named Pompey. He was a general from Rome, and he enslaved the Jews. And in the early teens AD, another emperor came and freed the Jews, and apparently this synagogue rose up around these freedmen who were freed, and Stephen is invited to come in there and speak. And they start disputing with him. And this is a really strong word. I mean, they're really debating. They're, they're going at it here in a, in a way. And they're disputing with Stephen. And they were not, watch this. Let me remind you of something. This guy's a waiter. A waiter. And there's nothing wrong with being a waiter. But i got to tell you, when I think of waiter, I don't think of theologically trained, an orator who's been to the schools to debate, an apologist. I just, I just don't think that. I think waiter who's serving food, helping the widows get in line, helping the widow. And there were several thousand of them. This guy's a waiter. But what was happening? He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he devoted himself to learning the word of God. And all of a sudden, he's invited to a synagogue. Remember what we said. We said it last week. Actually, we didn't say it. Jesus said it. If you'll just be faithful in the little things, I got to try you and start you out in the little things. I mean, most people don't come into the faith and schedule a 100,000-person evangelistic meeting in the Rose Bowl. Mostly what they do is they start serving in the chair ministry or the bulletin ministry or whatever the Lord calls you to. And the Lord, look, and, and, and the Lord says, I don't necessarily need you to have success. I need you to be faithful to what I've called you to. And if you can handle that in Matthew 20. Five, I believe it is. 
then maybe, maybe, quite possibly, your influence will be enlarged, right? That just makes sense. Of course the Lord's going to do it that way. And here we're seeing that principle put to work. You have a waiter, nothing against waiters. Praise God for waiters or waitresses. My wife, uh, uh, in, for a couple years in Hawaii, supported us by doing that. So praise the Lord. <laughs> but, uh, and you're like, oh, tell me that story. But uh, not today. <clears throat> but anyway, so the Lord just starts to mature this guy, to mature this guy, and somehow, some way, full of faith and power, doing wonders and signs among the people, these, this synagogue gets in a dispute with Stephen. Here he finds himself against a whole synagogue. A waiter, now an apologist. A waiter, now an evangelist. And they were not able to resist the wisdom, the wisdom of Stephen. They just couldn't. And the spirit by which he spoke, he was amazingly effective. Now, how is he effective? Because the spirit of God was in it. And the Bible tells us in James, you need wisdom. Hey, you need wisdom? Ask for it. Oh, that's hard. But the problem is, Jesus tells us, you don't have, I don't have, because I don't ask. Here's what we do. We get to work and we get into this problem or something and we go, you know, I've been doing this since 1992. I can figure this out. Thank you, but Lord, I got it from here. I've been a lawyer. I know what to do. I'll see you at five o'clock. But here, apparently, James is getting wisdom for everything that he does, including talking in the synagogue. And he bathes it in prayer and the Lord gives him wisdom and the people who are studying religious stuff are blown away. And it's all because the Spirit of God in this man's life. So they do. They dispute. And they're not able to resist the wisdom. I mean, they can't even uh, answer it in the spirit by which he spoke. And if you're holding on, watch. If you're holding on to external outward religion, this is ultra irritating. Wait a minute. There's something about that guy or gal, they just don't look good on the outside. There's something on the inside that I don't have. I've been to church my whole life. I serve on committees and I feel dead inside, but not that one. They speak and it's like a fountain of wisdom and peace and life and good news and gospel and forgiveness and love. And that's something that we don't have. That's what they're saying here. Boy, is that so true today? It is true today. Then they secretly induced men to say, watch what religious people do. Hey, you know what we'll do? We'll get people to talk about them. That's religious, external. They're upsetting my apple cart. And I don't want them to do that. So here's what we'll do. We'll get people to talk about them. That'll get them. That'll deter them. So they raise up lie. They, they, they hire or do whatever they do to hire men to speak blasphemies about these or speak lies about them. And here's what they say. Uh, we have heard him speak. We've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses, against Moses. By the way, in the Old Testament, it says in one of the Exodus chapters that you are not to revile and speak bad about God and the leaders that God appoints. Now, I'm not saying that about myself. I'm telling to you about Moses. And in fact, in Leviticus, if you blaspheme God and did some of these things, this was serious capital offense with stones. So when you read this, you read it one way. But when a Jewish person is saying, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, they're asking for the death penalty. This is serious stuff. Doesn't it sound eerily familiar? trumped up charges against our Lord and Savior Jesus. Because when you surrender your life to Jesus, you're going to be like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, if they hate me, they'll hate you. And here they come and they trump up these charges and they stir up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they come upon him, seize him and bring him to the council. And uh, if I had the picture, I would show you the picture. No offense to them. I sent it to them late. But there's a place that they took them right there on the Temple Mount. And it was intimidating. You walk into this circular place and there's these 70 men plus one, the chief high priest, and they're grilling you. 
Here it comes again. Stephen, a waiter, just living his life, doing what the Lord asked, and the next thing you know, boom, he's in front of the Supreme Court, and it happened like this. Where is God going to take you or us if we're just faithful in the little things? And the next thing you know, he's in front of the council. And they also set up false witnesses, again, very similar to our Lord and Savior, who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and this law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. What place? The temple. Remember what Jesus said. Three, going to knock down the temple in three days. I'm going to raise it back up. And right after he said it, by the way, he said, listen, I'm not talking about that place. I'm talking about my body. But they wouldn't listen. They do the same charges, religious people, same stuff. And uh, he also wants to change the custom which Moses delivered to us, the law. People love in religion. They love their customs. You got to look a certain way and do a certain thing and give a certain amount, when in reality it's all about having a relationship with the living Lord and enjoying Him forever. And you know this verse. You love this verse. And all who sat in the council. So now, not only do we have the priests who've come to the Lord and seen the wisdom, now Stephen is having an impact, watch this, on the supreme ruling council of Israel. And just a few hours before, he's just living his Christian life. And the next thing you know, he's right in there. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, we're going to close. But what does that remind you of almost immediately? Remember when uh, Moses received the law and he was coming down from the mountain? What happened to Moses? He was glowing. Who did they say? Veiled. He was veiled. Who, who did they say Stephen just criticized or attacked? Moses. And so the next thing we see, we see that Stephen has the face of an angel. What does that mean, has a face of an angel? Do we have this quote from Ironside? Oh, I was bad boy today. I was giving it to him late. Got it? There we go. Here's what H.A. Ironside about this. I wish I could have a photograph or a picture of Stephen standing before the council, listening to all those false accusations and noticing the expressions of rage, ridicule, and indignation on the face of his accusers. Yet, he stood there looking at them with a radiant countenance, full of love, trust, peace, and confidence, undisturbed by all the bitter things that were being said. His heart was not filled with malice. That one gets me. Right there about this time, when they're doing that to me, I'm thinking, how am I going to get you back? Without the Lord, that's me. Boom. But he wasn't filled with malice because of their hatred toward him, but joy in the realization that he was there as Christ's faithful servant. One man said this, the face is made every day by its morning prayer and by its morning look out of windows which open upon heaven. Another one has said this, it was once said of a Christian man that, quote, his face, listen to this, his face was a thanksgiving for past mercies and a love letter to all mankind. Wouldn't you want your countenance to be a thanksgiving for past mercies and a love letter to all mankind? Wow. Let me leave you with this. Solomon knew about this. In Ecclesiastes 8.1, he says this, Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Watch this. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. One of the things that God wants to do is give each of us who are following Christ his wisdom. And remember, James tells us that there's a wisdom of the world that's sensual. It's no good. 
But there's also a heavenly wisdom that Solomon came to recognize was that above the sun wisdom. And I'm just praying, aren't you just praying as we move on out of here? One, I'm praying this, that if there's anybody in here who's never given their life to the Lord or trusted in Christ, that they would do so. And you can come up after and we could talk about that. But also, I think when you read this, you go, don't you say this sort of, come on, be honest. No way. I don't think I could do it. I mean, if I went before the ruling council and they were leveling charges at me, could I be a man with no malice, with joy, with peace, with contentment? And the answer to that is, I could, but only if I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come together as brothers and sisters and we pray together and ask that you would fill us afresh today. You've asked us to go and to serve and to love and to share. And Lord, we're going to continue in your word because we know that's good for us. We grow and mature as we study your word, take in your word and obey your word. Help us to be doers of your word, not just consumers of your word. And Lord, through it all, fill us so that we have boldness lovingly to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. And in the meantime, Lord, fill us up with the peace that passes under, so, uh, understanding so that we can have a heart like you can for those who are lost and even unlovely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.